Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. In 1992, eight decades after the publication of Kandinsky's Concerning the Spiritual in Art, the music group Stereolab closed out their first non-compilation album with the song Surreal Chemist, links to which may be found on lapsuslima.com. The song begins with a strummed guitar following a simple oscillator rhythm, while further in, the interplay of vocals has them falling into alignment with each other. The simple guitar notes serve this function at the start, a widely swung, ascending arpeggio of the backing vocal in contrasting descant to the lead, drops out as the picked guitar melody grows progressively entrained with the main vocals. Repeatedly, then, you hear voiced phrasing, indeed a stimmung, change over from one substance into another, then fall into sync, guitar to vocals, and some minutes later, voice to voice. It is a credit to the enduring influence of Kandinsky's sentiments, or more precisely, to his insight on percolating cultural forces that ideas of intra-substantial transmission, largely in phase with those he had expressed in the simile of the spiritual triangle, are so effectively voiced in this music. In the case of Kandinsky, and at least early to middle Stereolab, artistic effort does not exist for its own sake. The work of art is a catalyst, a trigger. In moving beyond what theory or art alone could accomplish, it calls for an alchemical transfiguration of the self and the surrounding world with each successive iteration. 20th century modernism stood in stark contrast to the 19th century eclecticism before it, and even to the cynical postmodernism that would follow in its wake, in that it often held close the desire, the need, to change the world. But can an untransformed person effect true change? And would such changing of the world reflexively transform the very self that is attempting to enact change in the process of the change itself? The Faustian world picture that presented to the West an isolated self, questing through inanimate, infinite space, collapsed into a chicken-and-egg paradox when its entire civilization as a whole was forced to break old patterns and to journey through the kind of tribulation that was once reserved for epic heroes or tales of the end times. As we have seen in episode 15's look at the Bauhaus Manifesto and Mutasius's injunctions to form in episodes 6 through 9, European modernism did not start out with the severe, functionalist tone that is so often ascribed to it. 
Though the Bauhaus would certainly include this approach in its final years, during the Weimar era especially, the appointment of philosophizing painters to the faculty meant students would learn and apply architectural skills by becoming involved in projects like the Sommerfeld House, but that classroom instruction would be chiefly in the fine arts. Though Itten and Kandinsky were academic rivals, and differed in other areas as well, they were both firmly rooted in the expressionist conviction that humanity was shedding a cocoon, with art transmitting light to dry its wings. These early Bauhaus professors hardly aimed to change the world by speaking to students about workers' apartments, or of how to turn the home into a machine for living. Technological innovation had been impressive for decades, and it hardly needed designers to be so. But left lagging in the dregs of this material triumph, they worried, was the human soul. Theirs was a call for revolution in the head, to bring about a turning point in the relation between the self and the world, in a setting in which both were radically changing. And this raises the issue of dualism. The way that architecture shapes the world, and in which we shape architecture, has hardly a more fundamental ground of contention than the manner in which things material and immaterial are understood in their relation to each other. At the request of listener Carl T., we now present a further explanation of dualism in the frame of Kandinsky's writing on art. We briefly touched on dualism in episode 14, when we defined expressionism. At its most basic, dualism is the belief that there is a non-physical realm distinct from the one we perceive with our five senses. It is thus often known as the mind-body problem, and uses the terminology of inner and outer, of inside and out. There are two kinds of opposition to the various forms of dualism. If you believe that there really is nothing apart from the physical world, then you're a strict materialist. If you want to do away with any sort of mind-body separation and retain belief in souls, God, mental events, or spirit of some sort, then you subscribe to monism, which has regained some popularity as the limits of the broadest definitions of dualism are reached. But as we mentioned last time, monism is a rather unsubtle hammer to make philosophy with, because it treats the body and mind, which, although connected, are very distinct as a single nail. Though dualism is often portrayed as a rigid concept of mind-body or mind-world separation, there are significantly different constructions of it worth exploring. We won't touch on all of them because the laundry list of philosophical contributions to dualism is long and very storied, but the man credited with 
or blamed for, the most pervasive form of so-called strict dualism is René Descartes, who, while grappling with the problem of doubt in his Discourse on Method, wrote the famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. In amplifying all sense input, from the physical world to dreams, to maximum levels of doubt, the one remaining constant for Descartes was that the ego, the self, was either perceiving or questioning. Due to this consistency, he argued the opposite of those Eastern religions which, in formulations like Tatvamasi, or In that way are you, found ego to be the most persistent of illusions. Descartes thought the least dubitable element of the world to be the self. Following from this, he discusses in the Meditations how one can therefore separate everything, except God, who is beyond all categories, into two realms. The res extensa, or material world, the extended thing, and the res cogitans, the mental thing. This division is congruent with Kandinsky's own distinction between the material and the spiritual. However, the real heart of the matter is in how one relates and connects or disconnects the two realms with each other. Let us be clear in saying that, in outlining various types of dualism and interaction models, they should not be taken as hard assertions of fact, but as metaphysical heuristics, lenses through which decisions can be made, the world observed, and problems solved. This does not, however, cast them all into a postmodern grab bag of subjectively determined equal value. If anything, it reminds us that one should see them as instruments for thinking rather than as hard hypotheses about how the world is and perception works. One of the greatest blind spots in recent science has been to treat strict dualism as a demonstrated hypothesis. Kandinsky's injunction to not cling to rigid definitions of dualism has its grounds in avoiding just this kind of problem. Descartes' view has been called Cartesian dualism, or substance dualism. Here, the mental and the physical are two entirely different substances, different things. The race cogitants is alive with a soul, while the physical world is all mechanical and in Descartes' appraisal, even lacks color, which is a subjective, mental interpretation of light. Divine intervention, then, whether in the occasion of mechanical wind-up or of soulful inspiration, is the reason for all action. This dualistic lens proved to be particularly helpful in the investigation of physics and chemistry since mechanical explanations could be sought 
within an external realm that had subjective elements withdrawn from it. Beginning with biology, however, anything that grew in apparently smooth progression would throw what was an otherwise tremendously useful frame of reference for physics into question. In his dialogue, D'Alembert's Dream, Denis Diderot wrote that the substance distinction between self and world creates absurd paradoxes when organic growth is observed. He gives an age-old question a disquieting turn. At what point in time does an egg become a chicken? This claim for gradual development is the groundwork for emergence, sometimes known as property dualism, where consciousness is a smooth outgrowth of the material. Well before Diderot, Gottfried Leibniz countered Descartes with his own form of emergent dualism. Much like Diderot, he saw a gradation of complexity in how matter interacted, increasing to a point in which cause and effect, or perception as he called it, came to be itself perceived. This is the onset of apperception, or consciousness, with animals having a more or less simple awareness and humans a more complex arrangement of the same process. This model for causality is referred to as psychophysical parallelism, which Leibniz called the pre-established harmony to accommodate his own theistic spin. Since physical events and mental events do occur, and sometimes seem to interact, Leibniz simplified Descartes' system of divine occasions of influence-creating actions. In his remarkable 1714 work, The Monadology, he wrote of where he felt Descartes' dualism fell short. In addition to insisting that a soul should somehow be in the driver's seat of a body, the Cartesian model of causality had been hobbled by scientific discovery. Descartes recognized that souls cannot give force to bodies because the same quantity of force is always conserved in matter. He believed, however, that the soul could change the direction of the body, but this was because the law of nature was still unknown in his day, according to which matter conserves also the same total direction. This is conservation of momentum. If he had noticed this, he would have fallen upon my system of pre-established harmony. In a 1696 letter to Basnage de Beauval, the philosopher explained just what he meant by pre-established harmony and how he discovered the concept. His model of dualistic causality within a framework of emergence was inspired by pendulums. If you support two pendulums from the same beam and swing them out of phase, 
they will entrain back into phase due to the momentum conducted by the beam. Leibniz saw mind and matter as distinct yet closely connected in this very manner, as if two faultless watches had been synchronized. The mental and the physical world unfolded together, appearing to interact, but remaining separate. But why did he need to make this argument? In the letter to Beauval, he writes, Put the soul and body in the place of these two timepieces. Then their agreement or sympathy will also come about in one of these three ways. The way of influence is that of the common philosophy. But since it is impossible to conceive of material particles or of species or immaterial qualities which can pass from one of these substances into the other, this view must be rejected. Leibniz's own use of the pendulum metaphor presents an argument against this supposed impossibility of intra-substance transmission. The momentum is transferred between the pendulums by means of the connecting beam. He had been familiar with and spurred by the investigations of Christian Huygens, the Dutch scientist who discovered Saturn's moon Titan and invented the pendulum clock. During this research, Huygens observed what the publications through the British Royal Society described as an odd kind of sympathy between two pendulums set swinging in opposite directions while suspended from the same baton. The two asynchronous motions would, in due course, synchronize, describing a phenomenon we now know as entrainment. But because Leibniz saw no possibility for the spirit-matter boundary to be crossed in the way that the interpendulum boundary was, he felt it necessary to limit his construction of dualist causality to this pre-established harmony. He thus preserved the distinction of mind and matter while addressing Cartesian shortcomings, but kept the two spheres apart. And just as Descartes limited his metaphysics by being unaware of the conservation of momentum, Leibniz was unaware of the photoelectric effect and the matter-energy equivalents we already touched on in our previous episode. We have since found that it is not only possible to conceive of particles transferring from one substance into another, solar cells would not work without it. So it is plausible that the pre-established harmony may not be required as a causal heuristic. Kandinsky endorsed a matter-spirit equivalence via his simile of the spiritual triangle, taking him beyond where Leibniz said one could not tread. Though the painter's descriptions of the movement 
of and within the triangle suggest belief in a form of emergent property dualism, as both Leibniz and Diderot attested to. His particular departure is in the assertion of interactionist dualism. Unlike Leibniz, Kandinsky believed that the material and the spiritual did interact and influence each other, with art being the triggering connection between them both. Art is a beam between pendulums. One of Kandinsky's most famous quotes conveys this richly. Color is the keyboard, the eyes are the hammers, the soul is the piano with many strings. The artist is the hand which plays, touching one key or another to cause vibrations in the soul. The metaphor of the keyboard is his model of interactionist dualism and displaces the causal models of Descartes and Leibniz. Even then, Kandinsky felt that his astounding metaphor was not complete without this conclusion, which he cast in all capital letters. It is evident, therefore, that color harmony must rest only on a corresponding vibration in the human soul. And this is one of the guiding principles of the inner need. He felt that this idea was yet more important than the keyboard, that affects like color harmony were dependent on a vibration within the soul rather than on a harmonic dialogue between mental and physical. And this is the crack in his foundation. While Kandinsky was stepping beyond established forms of dualism in notable ways, he was apparently still under the sway of the questing model of isolated ego identity. He was unable to articulate the co-determinate identity that goes hand in hand with the causality of interactionist dualism. He can hardly be faulted too much for it, but ideas have consequences. The failure to define conscious identity as an active dialogue between inner awareness and external matter led Kandinsky, and the Bauhaus by extension, into an over-spiritualized hegemony of concept. Slowly but surely, abstracted ideas would win out over connected feeling. And you cannot change the world if your view turns inward only. Join us as we conclude our reading of Kandinsky's Concerning the Spiritual in Art, next time on Lapsus Lima. Thank you for listening.